0: The 2005 movie, Batman Begins, was a really significant one in, in the history of, of film in general and, and kind of superhero movies in general. Uh, have, how many people have seen that movie? It's going to be no one, and this is just going to bomb, isn't it? Okay, three of you have seen that movie. That's good. How many people are more familiar with uh, the old Batman and Robin series, the Adam West, The Yeah, that's, that's more people. I thought so. So... Previous, like, you know, back in the, whenever, I honestly have no idea when that aired, I just know it was before my time. In the 60s? Oh, man. I was born in 1990. Don't, don't forget that. Um, anyway, the old Batman and Robin series, like, it was, it was a kid's show, right? You had, you know, Batman and Robin wandering around in their underwear or whatever that was, and, you know, you had, you know, pictures of Batman running around with, like, a giant bomb with a fuse, and it's just ridiculous, and, you know, the pow and the, it, it was ridiculous. Batman Begins in 2005 was a dramatic shift away from that. It became, it was incredibly dark. It was incredibly gritty. It was the story of, you know, this, this man, Bruce Wayne, who had lost everything. And it was a real shift away from, you know, the, the kiddie comic book movies of the past. And really was pivotal in its genre and helped launch um, and help, you know, the comic book movies become, become a lot more mainstream. I say this not because I'm preaching this morning on the history of film, even though maybe we'll do that sometime. Just kidding, we're not going to ever do that. Um, I say that because part of, the, part of the gritty nature of this film, part of the real story about this man who lost his parents, involves a, a common trope that you see throughout the movies, on TV, you know, whenever you're reading things. You, you see this all over the place, and once you notice it, you kind of see it everywhere. At the beginning of the movie, Bruce Wayne is dealing with the death of his parents, and he's angry. He really wants to get vengeance on the evil in the world. So he goes out into the Himalayas, and there's this scene. It's cold and dark, and the wind's whipping around. Remember, dark gritty instead of light slapstick. And there's this scene of him climbing this mountain. He crosses a glacier. He goes up through this Himalayan village, You know, all these Nepalese villagers are you know, covering their, the eyes of their children because the strange man is wandering through. And he goes up and finds this temple. He finds a man named Raz Agul, who's going to show him how to channel his fear and his anger into a force for good. This trope, once you notice it, you kind of see it all over the place. The theme of ascending to the top of a mountain to find some sort of secret knowledge up there. You've got to go find the guru. You've got to go find the guy who has all the knowledge. You see this all over the place. There, there's a quote um, that honestly doesn't add a lot to the, uh, the sermon, but I, I thought it was funny, so I, I wrote it down. This is from Terry Pratchett and Stephen Briggs. They write, wisdom is a lot wiser the farther away it is. Any old thing written down by some bald old man with lots of X's and Z's in his name is bound under rule to sound more wise than the same thing written by the man next door. This especially applies if the putative wise man lives above the snow line. No one ever says, if he's so wise, why isn't he on the beach? a good question. But as you watch movies, as you as you watch TV, you see this theme of the hero, of the, the protagonist ascending the mountain to try to find some ancient wisdom. This is an old theme. It goes all the way back to at least Greek mythology. Right of the oracle at Delphi. Delphi, not the car company up in Saginaw, it's now next to you, not that. There's a city named Delphi, and there was an oracle who lived at the top of this mountain. And if you wanted to go find you know, whether the gods were in favor of you, you would ascend to the top of the mountain in order to find some secret knowledge. And there's a reason this theme is so prominent in our history and continues even in comic book movies today. It's because in the ancient worldview, the gods lived up in the heavens, And if you wanted to go meet with the gods, you went to the top of a mountain. You see this in the Bible. Anytime someone goes to meet with God, they meet with God on top of a mountain. The temple in Jerusalem is on Mount Zion. Israel, when they left Egypt, they go up to meet with God on the top of Mount Sinai. At the Tower of Babel, when humanity was trying to reach God on their own, they kind of erected their own little mini-mountain. That was where you went in order to fellowship with the divine. Moses here in this passage deals with this theme. He says, the word, the commandment that you have been given is not far above your heads. You don't have to ascend to the top of a mountain to find a wise man in order to get it. No, no, no. It's already right here. It has already been brought down to you. Before we get any further, it might be a good idea to revisit the history of, of where we are at in this story. This is, uh, this is the final um, sermon in the series of Deuteronomy that we're going through. We're going to kind of do like an epilogue excursus thing next week. But this is our last sermon from the book of Deuteronomy. So we have a little bit of history to cover. Going back all the way to Adam and Eve... God presents Adam and Eve a choice, right? He says, don't eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You can eat any other tree. Don't eat that one. And by presenting them a choice, he presents them a choice between life and death, a choice between blessing and cursing. They can choose to live in the Garden of Eden, to live in fellowship with him, to live in blessing, or they can reject that and do things their own way. And if you're familiar with the story, and I imagine most of you are, they chose cursing. They chose death. And so God drives them out of the Garden of Eden. And the rest of Genesis 1 through 11 is the story of how humanity keeps going farther and farther away from God until we get to Genesis chapter 12, where God comes down to Abraham and he promises Abraham blessing. He says, I'm going to undo what Adam and Eve brought in the world. I'm going to bring blessing through you, through your descendants, to the entire world. The world will be blessed because of you instead of cursed because of Adam and Eve. God's going to undo through Adam and Eve what he did. Abraham's descendants were the nation of Israel. They were in the land of Egypt. And they grew and multiplied there for a little bit until they were enslaved. And God brought them out with a strong arm, with a mighty hand, With signs and wonders, he brings Israel out of Egypt. He calls them his firstborn son, his adopted children. He brings Israel out through the Red Sea, through the place of death to escape death. And he brings them to that mountain. And Moses goes up to meet with God. And as if you've ever watched the Ten Commandments or the Prince of Egypt or seen any kind of religious art anywhere, you've seen pictures of Moses walking down the mountain with those two blocks of stone, right, with the Ten Commandments written on them, bringing God's word, God's commandments down to his people. And at, the, at Mount Sinai, God enters into a relationship with Israel. He says, I am your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. You are my people, love me. Obey my commandments, do as I say. And it can be tempting to think, depending on your religious tradition especially, it can be tempting to think that God's commandments to the people were a series of hoops that they needed to jump through in order to get God's blessing. But the reality is that the commandments themselves were the way to live in blessing. Israel's going to go to the land, and if they want to live as blessed people in the land, then they're going to love their neighbors as themselves, because that's the best way to live. They're going to take time to not work, time to fellowship with God, remember the Sabbath day, because that's the best way to live. They're going to love they're, they're going to you know, obey God's commands for, for sexual morality in marriage for the purposes of childbirth because that's the best way to live. They're going to do these things because the law itself is the way to blessing. If they will embrace it, if they will keep it, then they will be blessed. The book of Deuteronomy means, the word Deuteronomy means second law. It's a retelling of God's commands to Israel. After God brought them out of the land of Egypt, they were supposed to go into the land in order to possess it, but that first generation didn't trust God, so they wandered in the wilderness for about 40 years. And after all, the children had been raised up who didn't see all of the wonders that God did in Egypt, who didn't really, you know, maybe there were kids at Mount Sinai, but they don't remember much. Moses talks to them. And he retells the law to them. He retells what God has done for them. He retells them the commandments that he has for them. And this speech, as Deuteronomy is ending, is the speech right before they go into the land. And he says this. He says, the word is not far off you. The commandment that, that you have is not some unattainable commandment. You have it right in front of you. You don't have to wonder about what God wants for you. The law that they had, the commandments that they had, were not a divine vending machine, right? We, we, know, we know what a vending machine is, right? You walk up to a pop machine and you put like five bucks in it, or however much pop costs from a vending machine nowadays. I honestly have no idea. I haven't bought pop for a while. It's been a long time since high school. But you put like five bucks in it, and then it gives you the pop, and you, you drink it, and it's a, you know, financial transaction, The law is not like that. It's not like we walk up to God and say, here's five obediences. You know, give me five obediences worth of blessing. No, no. The law itself is blessing. And Israel has the choice. Do they they walk in the way of blessing or not? Do they follow God's laws or not? But to reject God's law is to reject the way of blessing. It's to bring cursing on them like Adam and Eve did. It's a choice To instead of living in the land and fellowshipping with God there, to be driven from his presence, to be driven out of the land, and to experience cursing. In some ways, this choice is easy, and in some ways, it's difficult. This choice is easy because the choice is clear. Right? As Moses said, the word is not beyond them. The commandment is not you know, some far-off thing that they have to wonder about. They are not some pagan people wondering what the gods want and you know, trying things. Oh, should we try sacrificing a virgin? Should we try doing this thing? Should we try doing that? No, no, no. They don't have to wonder about what God wants. They know what God wants. They have it in the book that God gave them, in the tablets that Moses brought down from the mountain. They know what God wants. So in, in one sense, the command is easy. But in another sense, it's difficult. Moses says in Deuteronomy chapter 10 that in order to keep these commands, the people of Israel have to circumcise their hearts. And without getting into the gory details, circumcision is a cutting away of something. Something. So when we think about our hearts being circumcised, it's a weird thought process, right? but that's, that's the biblical view of things. When we think about our hearts being circumcised, we think of the dead flesh in our hearts, that which is black, that which isn't getting any more blood flow, the pride, the arrogance, the selfishness that we have. And in order to keep God's law, that sin, that sinful nature has to be cut away. And in Deuteronomy 10... Moses tells the people, circumcise your hearts so that you can keep this law. But by the time we get to Deuteronomy 30, verse number six, this command is for the people of God, or this promise, excuse me, is for the people of God. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, so that you may live. So they have this command right in front of them. And in in one sense, it's easy because they know what it is. It's right there. It's not some impossible task, right? Like hold your breath for 20 minutes or, you know, something ridiculous like that. This is doable. But also it's really difficult because it involves the cutting away from our hearts that only God can do. Only God can reach into our hearts and change who we are. There's a phrase in this section that I think is is really interesting. And that comes at the end. Therefore, this is verse 19, choose life that you and your offspring may live, loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice and holding fast to him. Here's the phrase. For he... Is your life. He is your life and length of days, that you may dwell in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers. One of the temptations that the Israelites would face is to, you know, read the book of Deuteronomy, see all the laws that are, you know, may seem really in depth, may seem really inane, and think that those are the point. Those things are not the point. The Lord is your life. God is your life. In verse number 11, uh, the text says, For this commandment that I command you today, the word commandment there is singular. There is one commandment, which if you read through the book of Deuteronomy may be a little bit confusing because there's, you know, as some people have counted, there's you know, six hundred odd commandments in the Old Testament. So how do we get one commandment from them? Well, as we heard a few weeks ago, the law is summarized in the command to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all of your might. That word love there is not you know, some kind of physical or emotional attraction. It's not like you know, two young teenagers in love or what they think is love. That kind of love is really similar to an old love, the kind of love that an old married couple has for each other, the kind of love that even though you don't love the person, right? some days you wake up and you know, you're excited to be with them. Some days you, you, know, you don't want to see their face and you need some coffee before they talk to you but you still love them. I got way too many smiles on that one. I'm going to do some marriage counseling in this. Anyway, I'm just kidding. We know there's two types of love, right? There's that that heart-palpitating emotional attraction, and then there's truly caring for someone's well-being, truly being loyal to the relationship that you have. That's the kind of love that Deuteronomy is talking about. Love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. God had already brought them out of Egypt. God had already adopted them as his people. He had already redeemed them. He had already saved them. And he he shows them this blessing, this law, which may look like a bunch of different commands in order to do, to earn God's favor. But in reality, it's summed up by love God. Be loyal to God. Embrace God. Because he... Is your life. Yes, keeping God's commands will bring you blessing. But the point of all of those commands is to point you to the one who gives them. It's to point you to the one who adopted you in the first place, who gave you blessing in the first place. The point is Israel's Redeemer. Earlier in the service, we read uh, from Romans chapter ten. Maybe a familiar passage to you, maybe not. But Romans chapter ten quotes this this very passage, and it applies it to Christ. Moses tells the people, "The word is not beyond you. It's not up a mountain. You don't have to climb a mountain and you know talk to Razagul and learn kung fu in order to you know gain the secret knowledge or anything like that." It's not, you know, in the sea so that you have to go out into some abyss and fight a sea monster for it or anything like that. It's not any of those things. It's here. And in quoting this passage, Moses applies the word to Christ. He says, Christ is not in heaven. Christ, the word of God. Right, the speech of God, the Word made flesh, he's not far beyond our reach so that we have to wonder about him. No, he came down to this earth. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. The Word did not stay in heaven. The Word is not some inaccessible thing for us, but Christ came down, the full revelation of God, the law completely fulfilled, came down, lived a perfect life, Died the death, not that he deserved, but that we deserved. And he rose again from the dead, not in some metaphorical way, not in some way that, oh, he lives within our hearts. No, 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 no. He rose again from the dead literally and bodily because he is the Word of God made flesh. Paul says we don't have to go down into the depths, into the abyss to try to bring Christ back up from the dead because he's already come back from the dead. And even though he's ascended to heaven, Christ has sent his Holy Spirit to us to unite this body together, to speak to us as we read the written word of God, to fill us as we eat of his flesh and drink his blood in the Lord's Supper. Christ is accessible to us. He is not far off. He is here for all who will call upon him. As ancient Israel was preparing to go into the land, they were faced with a choice. A choice put into very, very clear terms by Moses. He said, you guys have the choice to choose life or to choose death. You can obey this law that you've been given, or you can reject it, It's the same choice Adam and Eve had in the garden. You're going to obey God, disobey God. It's the same choice that we have. It's in some ways an easy choice. We know what we have to do. We have to believe. In some ways, it's a difficult choice. We can't actually do it unless God changes our hearts. But the choice is right here nonetheless. Do we follow Christ or do we not follow him? Do we live our own way or do we live his way? Do we embrace our Savior and have faith and trust in him for our salvation, to forgive us of our sins, or do we reject him and try to go our own way, try to find our own way to God? The choice is right in front of us. The choice isn't a one-time thing either. I'm not suggesting that, you know, oh, you made a choice when you were 15 at church camp or in confirmation or whatever it was. I, I chose to follow God, and now I'm good. The choice has been made, so now, now I'm in. The choice is in front of us every day. When you walk out those doors, you'll have the choice to love God or to not love God, to follow Christ or to not follow Christ, to obey the law or to not obey the law, to choose blessing or to reject God's blessing. When you wake up tomorrow morning, you'll have the same choice. Do I want to follow Christ, or do I not want to follow Christ? That's why Jesus, in the New Testament, says, no, you have to pick up your cross every day. You have to die daily. It's a daily decision to follow Christ. And the choice is with us in our everyday actions. Do we choose blessing, or do we choose cursing? Do we choose to trust Christ for the forgiveness of our sins, or do we choose to try to work our way to please God? Do we choose to love the written Word of God that we have today? Do we choose to read our Bibles, to love it, to memorize it, to let it soak down into your heart? Or do you choose to just leave it on the shelf, maybe grab it on your way to church and put it back by the front door for next week? Do you love the written Word of God? Do you love the body of Christ? You face a choice every day. Do you love the people who are seated in this room around you? Do you love the people whom God has called out to be a unity, a body of believers that grows up together into Christian maturity, that grows up together to look like Christ? Do you choose to love that body or do you choose to show up to church? Maybe hear a message, sing some songs, and then go home and continue to be walled off, to continue to think that your spirituality is a private matter? The choice is before you to choose blessing or to choose cursing. Do you choose to love your neighbors as Christ did? The weak among us, the ones who are different than us, the ones whom we wouldn't automatically go out and love, do we choose to love them because Christ loved them or do we choose to ignore them people of god the word is not on top of some mountain somewhere so that we have to wonder about what god wants from our lives we do not have to wonder we know what god wants we have god's instruction we have the person of jesus christ come down embodying god's word and god's commandments so the choice remains in front of us, even right now. Do we follow God? Do we embrace Christ? Or do we walk our own way? But keep in mind, the commandments that God gives are not, you know, for, for his own entertainment or something like that. They are the blessing itself. People of God, as Israel was offered the choice, and Moses tells them, he says, now choose life that you may live. The choice is before each of us, even now. Now choose life, people. Choose the blessing. Choose to follow Christ, because that is the way to life itself. Will you choose life, or will you reject it? Will you pray with me?